Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Bodies and Souls, Conversations for the Jewish Woman. My name is Sarah. I'm a certified teacher and school leader. I'm passionate about education and Torah and Hasidus. My name is Rifki. I am a certified nurse, midwife, and college teacher. I am passionate about using our bodies and our innate spiritual abilities to serve Hashem in the most healthy and complete way possible. Together, we are pleased to present to you Bodies and Souls, fascinating and informative conversations for you, the Jewish woman. Our aim is to provide you with multidimensional information that will inform and inspire you to be the best version of yourself, supporting your bodies and souls as they strive to be the very best in fulfilling our ultimate potential in bringing Mashiach now. Hello and welcome back to Bodies and Souls. Your host for today are Rifki Boyarski and Sarah Lowenthal. Today we have our really super special Hanukkah episode. Um, we designed this episode specifically for you. So it's going to have all sorts of, it has all sorts of beautiful content that really will, you could listen to it again and again as you get ready for Hanukkah on Hanukkah because it's really beautiful and powerful and real life. It's bringing Hanukkah into your life today. So we have with us right now, Laura Melnikoff. Laura, can you introduce yourselves for people who don't know you? Thank you so much. My name is Laura Melnikoff and I am a cellist. I live in Albany, New York now, and I'm originally from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And it is so, it's an honor to be on the podcast with you today. Laura, you're selling yourself too short. One second. Laura, you are like a master cellist. So tell us a little bit about what you do before we go into the few questions we have for you. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, so I, um, I'm a professional cellist. That's what I do. Um, it takes a lot of practice time every day to really maintain things. So that's, that's like just the practice of it is a part-time job. And um, for the actual Parnassa of it, I do some classroom teaching and I freelance, I gig, I play at events, I do recording sessions, and I have some personal fun projects that I'm getting off the ground. Um, Now that I'm up in Albany, I have an accordion trio where I play with an accordionist and a bassist. I come down to New York City pretty frequently to play at events and um it's just a joy every time playing I love weddings I love playing especially at senior citizen facilities um nursing homes or assisted living or independent communities those are my favorite wow Laura what uh honor to be speaking to you. And as Rifki said, when you simply started off by saying, I'm a cellist without telling us more information, (laughs) you were hiding a lot of your gifts from us, from the listeners. Can you tell us how you got into playing the music? Like what age did you start? How often did you practice? I started at age six, at age six, because my mother made me. My mom wanted to learn to play the cello herself, and she took me along on the ride with her. Um, It had been a dream for her for most of her life, and she had been given piano lessons as a child, um, part of that, like, 
you know, like everybody in that generation, I feel like got piano lessons. My dad too, he got clarinet lessons. So they were given like the music education that like kids of the fifties and sixties got. Um, but she wanted to learn the cello. So there's a method um, for teaching music to kids, the Suzuki method, where often the parent learns the instrument along with the child. So that's what we did. And it was super cute. Um, and we kept at it because, um, you know, growing up, um, I went to public school in New York City, and it is a huge advantage if you have an extracurricular like that to help you get through school because, like, you're, you have to apply to middle school, you have to apply to high schools, and to get into the really good ones, like, but there's these specialized high schools, so I went to a performing, the performing arts high school, LaGuardia Arts High School. And um, it really is a huge advantage to be able to get into one of these specialized high schools. Um, ironically, I don't think my parents originally <laughs> wanted me to become a professional musician because, you know, like having music as an extracurricular really helps you get a leg up to do professions that like maybe a little consistently more <laughs> get um, well-paid positions. Um, it's, it's much more of a luck of the draw with being a professional musician. But by the time I was in high school, I was just so enamored with the experience of playing music and connecting with others through playing music and just the way that playing music can get you. Um, it's kind of like a passport to get you into all these different settings that you normally wouldn't be able to get into. I got to travel like that's kind of like the exciting end of it. But there are all these different settings like, you know, people's people's, you know, um, personal celebrations where you just go get to party with people. <laughs> and um, it's not awkward because you have like a place to be there at their party and play music for them. I just love that so much. So I love the part that you have what to do at the party. Such an introverted <laughs> statement to make, Laura. <laughs> I love it. That's me. <laughs> totally relate. So I'll tell you a little secret, everyone who's listening. Laura, um, the first time she played the cello and I heard the cello, I was like, Laura, and you've heard me say this more than once. Like, I feel like the cello is music of the soul. Like, there's something really soulful about the cello. I don't know. It's not really replicated in other musical instruments the same way. Laura, how do you use your music to serve Hashem? That is such a great question and such a great setup for it because of how the cello has this unique sound. Well, so for one thing, the cello's sound quality, like the way the cello's sound vibrations work, it has the quality of sound that's closest to the human singing voice. So that is really special that like there's this reflection of us in this like wooden instrument. And so that already is like this, you know, beautiful sign to me that there's all these like, you know, like a hidden spark sort of idea that there's kind of like this, this hidden dimension of objects that if you interact with them in a certain way, you get this incredible, <laughs> beautiful experience. So that's, I think, the unique thing about the cello. Um, and with music in general, um, so like I said, my favorite, I think my favorite thing is about being able to connect with people. And 
it's not just about like being able to, you know, <laughs> have something to do at a party, <laughs> um, but just to be able to come into a situation and, you know, the, 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 the special thing about music is that like the way you interact with music is you have to like kind of set aside your attention, some of your attention for it to listen to it. And so it's, you're connecting a whole audience together. And as the musician, you connect with them. And to be able to connect on a, a large scale with a whole group like that in this like special way, you know, like listening to music is like this, it's a unique thing. You know, we, it's, um, you know, you can compare it to other things, but it's its own unique activity. So just being able to connect to others is to me, that's, you know, that's connecting with Hashem. You're connecting to this, you know, collective soul that we share with each other. Um, that it's it's a spark of God above. I'm trying to imagine what it's like to play professionally. When you play with other musicians in a band, is it stressful? Hmm. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I was I was actually just talking with my therapist a couple hours ago about about working as a professional musician. I just moved up to Albany, New York in 2020. It was a pandemic move. So before the pandemic, I was working, I, I was playing in Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish in their original production. Like that, that time of my life, I look back on it. My husband was traveling for work and I was going out four nights of the week and like a fifth day of the week to play these shows and it was a huge amount of stress. I had two little kids and I was pregnant with number three and she was born at the end of that run. In so many ways, I felt like so alive. It was such a joyful, amazing time. But also looking back on it now that I'm like out of New York City also, it was like there was so much stress. <laughs> Just, you know, getting there, getting back, being on time, getting the child care, making sure everybody was fed, making sure I was getting enough sleep. It's, it's tough. Um, and I was telling my therapist at different times, I really miss it. And at really times, I really don't miss the stress of a job like that. But um, in a band, there's like a lot of time you spend together socially. So um, I really enjoy that about playing in groups. Thanks for telling us a little bit about your music career and about the behind the scenes. It's really fascinating. Rifkin, I really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for playing for us as well for a Hanukkah episode. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Without further ado, we're going to listen to Laura's take on Haneris Halalu. <laughs> Thank you. 
For the next part of this Hanukkah episode, we're going to listen to Tzivya Pizam from Steyrot, Israel. Tzivya, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, my name is Tzivya Pizam, and like Rifki said, I live in Steyrot. Originally, I'm from New York. I was Rifki's sister's classmate, Hani. Um, grew up in Crown Heights, raised, went to Beis Rifka, 
uh, got married and went out on Shluchos with my husband to Stirot, which was, when we moved here, a quiet little city, which even Israelis didn't know where it was located on the map. Like when I told Israelis we're going on Shluchos to Stirot, they were like, where is that? Um, uh, I had one friend who knew where it was because her grandmother lives here. So um, other than that, like really, it was a quiet, quiet city. Um, and so we've been living here for 22 years. We have uh, nine kids, Kanai Nahara. And um, that's a really background. Thank you, Tivia. I think at this point, probably every single person in the world knows where Stay Road is and knows what the community undergoes on a daily basis ever since the the people in Gaza, the Jewish people in Gaza were forcibly removed from their homes. Stay Road now has become the front lines. Why don't the people living in Stay Road move? They're under a barrage of rockets continuously. Um, so yes, you're right that once the um, Gush Katif was demolished and the people were kicked out of their homes, we've become more of a target. We've been a target actually before it was evacuated. Um, and people don't move because it's their home. And um, unfortunately, there are a lot of places in Israel that aren't much better. I mean, there's terrorist attacks everywhere. Um, and in the past few years, rockets have been you know, hitting a lot of other cities besides for ours. Yes, we've been a main target and for many, many years, and we don't really ever see it ending. But it's really, it's like me telling you, you know, just pick up and now move. You know, people get used to where they live and and they like it. It's their home. Aside from the rockets that come, it's a lovely place to live. Aside from the rockets that come. So we actually chose to have Tivia here because Hanukkah is very, like one of the main themes of Hanukkah is the few against the many. And I think in Steyrot, you feel that. Can you describe the community in Stay Road, is it very diverse? Are there a lot of people when you go in the streets? Does it, you know, do you have all the amenities that any other community has or is it vastly different? Um, it's changed over the past few years. So I'll tell you, when we moved here, um, let's start. The original Zderot is mostly um, Sephardi Moroccans who have moved here when they made Aliyah, the government basically placed them here. That was the first community here. When the Russians came up to Israel and made Aliyah, so they placed Russians here as well. So when we moved here, it was basically Moroccans and Russians. And it was pretty small. It had just become a city, which means it just hit uh, 24,000 people. That makes a city. Um, so it was, you know, a nice place. Everybody knew everybody. Um, over the years, when it started becoming a city with rockets and, and difficult to live here, people did move. Um, there were less and less people living here. But in the last about 10 years, the city's almost doubled. Um, there's a train station that was built in uh, Gosbrusterot. And um, many young couples have come to live here. There's buildings going up. I mean, it's like really almost doubled. I think today they said there's like 35,000 people living here already. Hey, wait, 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 wait. I just, I don't understand this. It's one thing if you're poor, if you're attached to your house and you have nowhere else to go. So you started off there, you're going to live through the Katushas. But why would young families move to stay road? So I'm telling you, we really have everything here. Look, there's a very, very large um, 
Mizrahi community that's been building here. Um, a Mizrahi community, they have here just about everything they need. They have from preschools, kindergartens, they have a girls' school, a boys' school, they have a Hezder Yeshiva here. There's a girls, a women's college not far from here. They really, really have everything they need here. Now, a lot of young couples, they tell me very simply, we come, it's great, it's a nice, it's cheaper living here. I mean, it is in the South. It costs a lot less than buying in other places. Um, it kind of can be idealist because, you know, we're moving to Starot. And then they say, when it gets crazy, we just move, we just go. You know, we leave the city, we go to our parents, you know, whatever, we go. But on a daily basis, you know, it's like, it's nice living here. Remember, I mean, nice, obviously everything's relative, but um, every house here has a bomb shelter. You asked me, what does our city look like? So um, we once had, uh, many years ago, a good friend of my father's came to visit and we walked down the street, basically from my house to the Chabad house, which is like a five minute walk. And he's saying, you know, oh, the city's like so nice. He said, but something is off. Like he was trying to figure out what. And he flew back to New York and then he calls me up. He said, I figured it out. He's like, it's a ghost town. There was nobody outside. He's like, it's a nice place, but there was like nobody outside. So people have learned to live with it. Everywhere ha- everywhere there's a bomb shelter, everywhere you go. First of all, every house in Sterot has one. Um, the government uh, put out a law about, it's probably been like 12 12 years now that every house needs a bomb shelter. In other words, the houses that didn't have one got one built. So everybody has a bomb shelter in their house. Every park has a bomb shelter, which is very sad, but true. Um, You have um, all our schools are new. All the schools are new buildings that they've built, that the entire building is a bomb shelter. The schools, the preschools, so kids don't have to run anywhere. They just can stay where they are. Um, every bus stop has a bomb shelter. It's basically like I say, we're, we're just about the safest city there actually is. Did the iron dome make a difference? Are you too close for comfort? Like, are you like, I feel like the iron dome is like this mythical, like halo above Israel, but maybe if you're really, really close, like you can't get the, I don't know. I'm not sure how it works, but are you too close for comfort? Like does the iron dome improve living in stay rope? Um, look, the Iron Dome is definitely um, miraculous. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's uh, it's definitely you know stopped missiles from landing. It's also given this um, feeling of it's okay, you know, and it's it's fine. But it it is it isn't a hundred percent. It's like ninety nine percent, but there's still that one percent. So I mean, we've still had you know, even though we've we have the Iron Dome, we've still had missiles landing, you know, in a house or wherever it has landed. Um, It's also, I think, ever since the Iron Dome, they've also allowed themselves to shoot missiles even further than Zderot. Like when it comes and it happens and it's like a, you know, one day or a 10 day war or, or like they call it here, Mifza, it's, it's gone everywhere. I mean, you know, it's come to Tel Aviv and to Ashkelon, to Ashdod. It's like, really, they're allowing themselves to go everywhere. And the Iron Dome does stop most of them. It's actually quite amazing. Can you tell us what it's like to experience living through a missile, a Katusha rocket? Uh, which one do you want to know about? I didn't even know there was a difference between <laughs> them. No, I'm saying which one that landed by me do you want to know about? Oh my gosh, please. What do you mean landed by you? Like in your house, in your yes. yard? Like, yes. okay, can you, can you talk to us? <laughs> I can't like so, my kids come home five minutes late and I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my, I don't know. Maybe like, 
What do you mean? It la- like multiple missiles landed in your home. What does that mean? Um, we've had over the years, we've had three in our home. Um, and actually one is related to Hanukkah. We have a Hanukkah miracle. On um, the um, Hanukkah, everybody knows, you know, Chabad, Mitzayim, we're, we're home. We don't go anywhere. And the last day of Hanukkah, we always went to a good friend of ours who lives in Yerushalayim. And um, she became a widow. We always made sure that on the last day of Hanukkah, we went to light candles with her. And we always stayed there. You know, we lit the candles, slept there. And then the next day, we used to go back home. So we did Hanukkah. We went to her. It was the eighth day. And then when we woke up, which the last day of Hanukkah, she's like, you know, uh, um, war broke out. Mifza, like, uh, you know, so just don't go home, stay here for the day. And um, the following day, which was Tuesday, I was learning that year um, to be a Kala teacher. And I was learning in Krachabad. And um, we then had five boys, and I was pregnant. And, um, and my husband's like, you know what, let's just stay here. We'll all go to Krachabad where you're learning. He said, I'm not going home with the boys. What am I going to do? They have no school. He said, we'll put them in a school. They'll see what a real, you know, Chabad school is like. He said, you'll finish learning. We'll go home. So that's what we did. We all went to Krachabad. And about at 11 o'clock, I got a phone call. And um, from my nephew who lives here also. And he's like, okay, where are you? I'm like, I just walked out of class. What? He's like, okay, a missile landed in your house. I'm like, where? Where in my house? He's like, right outside your bedroom. I'm like, I'm like, that's just, it was such a miracle because at that hour, at any other day, I would have probably been resting. And my boys would have been outside if they had no school. Like, it was just unbelievable. So we kept, you know, we put the kids in Krakowai. Then my husband and I came back to Zderot because we had to assess the damage. You know, if just you come and you see your entire house is like there's holes in the entire wall. The the just picture one side of a house. So one side of the house, there's a here it is where we have um, sun catchers and a water tank on top of our roof. Okay, that everything exploded. Half the roof was gone. You have holes on your entire wall from all the shrapnel that came out of the missile. The windows from the bedroom. The you know everything that's there. And you just, you know, you walk and you're just like, unbelievable, really. I mean, that was a true miracle in all, uh, in, in all its glory. So we always say, you know, that I went to learn to be a college teacher. We weren't home. So that's, that's our Hanukkah. And horrifying. <laughs> but what happens next? Like, I feel like we're so detached. Like we hear there's a missile attack. And we're like, oh, the people in Israel are suffering. Ive. And we kind of then move on with our lives. But what happens after? Like, so your home is, is, is torn apart. Your dude is not working. You have no place to bring your, 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 your kids basically home. What, like, what's next? Like, what happens? Um, so the process basically is now the government comes to fix your home. Uh, the process can take, it can be short, it can be long. It really depends. Some people, you know, it drags out forever. By us, it happened to have been really quick because the people who were in charge and responsible for it, you know, um, uh, knew my husband and they told the people, you know, the rabbi's house has to be done as fast as it can. And they really did. They came, they fixed it. I mean, it took about two weeks. And in those two weeks, we moved to Kfar Chabad. I lived by my grandmother. Um, but I know people who it took almost a year to rebuild. It's, it's not, you know, it's, I mean, it's a very sad joke here in Israel. You know, the first rocket comes from Gaza. The second one is the government until they fix your house. 
That's crazy. It's like, yeah. It's like, you, you know, you don't, you don't what, have you're out of your house. Yeah. What about the emotional or the mental trauma is the entire pop are the children walking around traumatized? Uh, yes. The in just about the entire population here in Sterot is living through some kind of trauma. And it's, um, and it's a trauma that is something that hasn't even been studied. I mean, obviously by now it's been and being studied, but it's basically um, what happens is people living in Sterot never hit post-trauma. Okay. In other words, we're constantly living in trauma. Now there's people go have an accident and then they say, okay, now there's post-trauma, you know, our soldiers go to war. They're in Afghanistan. They come home. There's post-trauma. Basically what happens is that people here, we never really hit post-trauma because it's never ending. It's like constantly going on. Um, most kids get therapy here. Um, a lot of people are on, uh, you know, psychiatric pills. Um, it, it's, it's definitely not an easy process for anyone, not children and not adults. There are all these like little things that only like when you live here, do you actually like live it and feel it, you know, like small things. Like there are times when, you know, kids are really afraid to shower by themselves. They, they don't want to go into the shower. You know, they want you to make sure you're standing right there. Um, you know, obviously they don't walk anywhere by themselves and, there are times, obviously there are times when everything seems perfectly normal here. You know, kids are running around and the swimming pool is open in the summer, but there's also been summers where the swimming pool is closed because it's, you know, heated times or they feel like something is going to go on and they don't want to take a risk. So the pool just doesn't open for the entire summer. So there's no, there's nothing really like normal. You can join like an after-school program. And then for like three weeks, there is no after-school program because nobody wants to take a risk. Or school, you know, you can wake up in the morning and there's no school today, or you can, or just the opposite, uh, you know, 11 o'clock at night, there was a missile and then you're expected to go to school. Like it's a regular day, but all our schools here really have um, programs to help the kids and, and all kinds of different things. You know, this is social, emotional learning. They bring in like all different kinds of activities to help the kids to cope, but it's, it's definitely, um, something that they live with. I mean, I know my eldest son, when he, he left the house, he actually, he joined the army. He's finished. He's 22 now. And he said, he said, you know, Ima, I'm telling you now I see what it means living in Zderot. I'm the only soldier who, when they started learning to shoot, I jumped every time, you know, somebody shot, um, you know, that sound, that noise, you know, made him jump, think twice. Where's it coming from? So yes, obviously there's a lot of uh, emotional issues that come with it. In our house, we try really, really hard to, uh, you know, install in our kids bitachan that Hashem is always watching us and He's the one who's taking care of us and we're here on shlachos and the Rebbe is watching us and we try when there's you know a missile we have a warning it's called seva adom there's a siren and uh, we basically when you hear it you go into your bomb shelter. And we always go in and we sing, you know, either we say the psukim with the kids or tehillim, something that will help them emotionally, you know, to know that Hashem is watching over us and not just get hysterical. But there are definitely lots and lots who get hysterical. Um, it was really hard for me to understand that because, Baruch my kids don't have any extreme, obvious um, trauma. They have trauma, just nothing. <laughs> Nothing that you can, you know, spot, but we had once um, there is basically in Sarot, all the doors are open. 
Okay, if there's a missile, you know, you just run into the first house you see. That's like everybody knows. Yeah, just walk into the person's house. It's finished. You can leave. So um, we once had um, we had a, a brother and a sister. They must have been like 16 years old, 15, 16 years old. They were walking right past our house when there was um, a tsevadom. My husband was standing by the door and he told them, come, come inside. He said the girl froze in place. She couldn't move. She just stood in her place and she started screaming, Iba, Iba, Iba. and her brother's telling her, let's go in, let's go in. She, she couldn't move. She just froze. Like it finished, like missile landed. We heard a boom. It was over. She just stood up and kept walking. I looked and I said, oh my goodness. So this is trauma. Like I just witnessed this 15 year old girl totally freeze. She, she wouldn't move. She didn't, she didn't even run to the bomb shelter. She was so scared. And then like, it was over, but basically she's living with that. And there's lots and lots of people living in some way with some kind of trauma. Wow. Um, I'm like, I, I think that we're, we really do get so detached and desensitized as the Chabad Shlucha in Stero. Were you involved in like cases where maybe there was a very long, prolonged missile scenario, especially, I feel like they're especially worse in the summers um, where people had to go out. Yeah. It's the heat. I think everyone gets heated up. I don't know, but I feel like every summer um, or the the boredom or they're trying to ruin our summer vacation. It's definitely the summer vacation. (laughs) Um, That's what it is. Um, But were you involved in cases where let's say a woman had to go to the mikvah and, you know, the first night, maybe you could push off going to the mikvah because it's so crazy. But then what do you do the second night or the third night? Like what happens in those type of scenarios? Like um, there's a wedding, there's a simcha, there's mikvah. What happens in, in like these moments where like you plan, you, you have to be somewhere. So I can tell you that there are no wedding halls in Sterot. And that's probably one of the reasons. There used to be a hall here. It was like a small one for bar mitzvahs. Um, and it, obviously it's canceled if there's something going on. You know, it's canceled. Um, Am Yisrael is unbelievable. Lots of times they've, you know, if something like this happens, they like sponsor somewhere else. Like, okay, let's move the bar mitzvah to Yerushalayim. And the hall gives it to them and the caterer, it's amazing. So, you know, you move there. And mikvahs quite complicated because first of all, unfortunately, there are no mikvahs that are sheltered here in Stirot as of now. The Chabados is actually, one of the projects now is to build a mikvah that is a bomb shelter. Because like you said, I mean, who wants to go to the mikvah? If in the middle, you know, there's going to be a siren going on. Like you said, either women push it off for a day or they go out of the city. You know, they go somewhere else. But it's definitely unpleasant to be in the mikveh and the siren goes off because you're, you're basically you're not protected. And um, there is no protection there. So um, it, it's definitely not a situation that's something we want to live through. Um, they're officially the city supposed to be building two mikvahs now. Hopefully they'll also be um, protected being that the city got larger and a, a, the community of from people has grown. So officially a mikvah is on the agenda. What do, as a Robinson, what do you tell your woman in your community who say, I'm too afraid to go to mikvah? How do you even answer that? That's okay. You don't have to go today. <laughs> Seriously. They're, they're really, I mean, that's the Rob's answer. Like, Either you push it off or I'll, I'll go with you to the next city. It, usually we know when it's happening. It, 
I mean, in the past few years, we like kind of know like something's going to happen, like something's heated up or or the Israeli army did something. And we know that, you know, they're going to get angry and we're going to we're going to get the feedback for it. So you kind of know. And like I told you, a lot of people just pick up and leave. People leave the city. There are also a lot of places around the country that open their doors for people in Sterot to come. You know, all kinds of like villages, kibbutzim, moshavim. People say, you know, we have a house, we have a this, come. Really, like people open their door and then just come. So people in such situations pick up and go. I have a really like, maybe I'm, I'm totally off the mark, but is there a difference in how people in Stero view the Arab-Israeli conflict versus people in maybe the other parts of the country? Just because you're very, very close for comfort? I think so. I think over the years, it's definitely been, um, people have changed their views because, I mean, when you live under a constant attack, your, your views, you know, are definitely not positive. I mean, you know, you're constantly being attacked by a certain group of people that, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing positive coming out of it. So I definitely think that us living through it gives us a different perspective on what we think as opposed to live, people living in Tel Aviv, who literally, I think people living in Tel Aviv are far more disconnected than you are. Because they're living in a different reality that they can redefine. Literally, literally, they're living in a different, different world. That's so interesting. Do you have like other cities in Israel where there are Arab workers who do come in regularly, like construction or, you know, those type of people or you guys, because of the situation of where you are and you don't have Arab workers coming? Um, We usually don't have Arab workers coming in the past like year or so. There are some coming in, but it's definitely not like in Yerushalayim where there are like Arab workers everywhere or or there are cities that are, you know, called mixed cities like Beersheba, where there's a lot of Bedouins and, and Jews living there together. That here in Sterot, there aren't any Arabs at all living. No Arabs, no Bedouins, like they don't live here at all. So we're not like involved with them. And workers, there may be construction workers who come in who are, but it's not, it's not like in cities where you really, really, you know, have them all over the place everywhere. Do you re- does your community receive like support from outside of Israel, from communities at, in the diaspora that give money back to stay wrote? Okay, that's like a very general question. The city itself gets a lot of funding. Okay, the city itself gets a lot of funding and it really gives it out to the people living here um, for all different kinds of things. And obviously, you know, like I said, our schools are new, we're building all the parks, everything, you know, is sheltered and there is and there are all kinds of programs for kids. So the city definitely has a large amount. As for the Chabad community, um, yes, people definitely help, um, especially when it, you know, it's missiles and, and basically, you know, kids can't go out and things like that. So people try sending things for kids that we can go out and give them, you know, like we'll go out and we'll buy a whole bunch of games and we'll go out to different families and bring them games and bring them food because people are afraid to leave their houses and go shopping. So you know, we'll, we'll go, we'll do that. Um, there have been some bar mitzvahs that have been sponsored, um, by communities, which is amazing. You know, there, there are communities all over the world that have like sponsored, um, you know, a boy's bar mitzvah who suffered from whatever it is living here. 
and made him a beautiful bar mitzvah. I know there's there's one boy, his father actually lost both his legs from one of the missiles attacked and they made him such a beautiful bar mitzvah. It was just, it was beautiful. It was nothing like grand and fancy and, you know, but it was just such a beautiful touching bar mitzvah. Like the people who sponsored came and, you know, joined in this boy's happiness. It was just beautiful. It really was. And that's the amazing thing. Like you see how no matter what, like our, our nation is, is amazing. They really are. We are, we are connected. You know, sometimes I have friends who, like they'll send me messages, you know, we're thinking of you, you know, we, we can't call you. We're not sending you messages, but it's just that we're thinking of you from all over the world. And, it, you know, it's always a good feeling, you know, when somebody sends you, because, you know, we're living between running to the bomb shelter and going out and in and out. And, you know, sometimes it can be for like hours straight. Sometimes it can be for days. You know, sometimes it's, you don't know where it's going to end. Sorry, when it's going to end. And, Sometimes it's like really frustrating those, you know, few days that you just, you're all over the place. You don't know what to do, if to go, you know, so, and sometimes like we don't leave because we're in Shlachas and we, we're here. We have, um, many years ago, we got a brach from the Rebbe in the Igras. We had, um, uh, how many years? Wow, well, it must have been a lot. Okay, my son's been five. It must have been like 16 or 17 years ago when there was still no Tseva Adom. And we still did not have bomb shelters everywhere. It was Shavuos time and um, it was really heated and there were missiles falling all the time. And basically most of the Zderot community had left, like people left. Either they went to family or it was sponsored to go to hotels. Like literally just everybody was out. And at some point, you know, my husband and I, maybe we're also supposed to leave. I mean, you know, there is Nishmatim on Nafshatech and like, which way do we go? So uh, we wrote a letter in to the to the Rebbe. I got a beautiful bracha that it's uh, the Rebbe wrote. Hashem is always watching us. Since then, we don't go anywhere. Literally, that's why when it landed in my house, Hanukkah, people called us up hysterical because they were sure we're home because we're always home. So um, uh, really, since then, you know, and we tell the kids all the time also that, you know, we have a bracha and Hashem is watching us. You still have to be careful and do, you know, what needs to be done. So we are here. I mean, that Shavuos, I think there were 3,000 people left in the city. 3,000 is not so little either, though. Like if you think 3, about 3,000 is a little, a city that has over 20,000. I know, but 3,000 is not 30. I mean, when you're under constant attack, 3,000 is still a lot of people under attack. Agreed. But again, it still means that almost everybody picked up and left. I mean, we were right, literally right. looking for houses. I mean, usually, you know, in Shavuos, you have you all the kids come together to hear Sarah Sadibras. There were no kids. Like my husband walked with the Sefer Torah to, they had actually, for that Shavuos, brought soldiers into Sderot. Don't ask me why. You know, we used to say, what are you going to do? Catch the missile? <laughs> um, it was kind of at the beginning of it. Like they were, you know, still deciding what's the right thing to do. And um, so my husband walked with the Sefer Torah basically to where soldiers were sleeping. And he did the, over there a Sarah Sedebris. So I'm saying there was really nobody here that uh, Shavuos. Every, every day is something else. Like I said, if, if three have landed in my house, actually one landed the last uh, Mifza that there was. So one landed here when it, there was just a lot coming. We basically were sleeping in the bomb shelter and one landed 
And like I had walked out, my husband was still in the bum shelter with the kids. And he's like, okay, Sylvia, it landed somewhere right here. He said the whole house shook. So I told him, you stay here with the kids, you know, read them a story. Let me go out and see what's going on. <laughs> I went out and it landed in our yard. So yeah, he was right. It landed right by us. So you really feel like the few in, in, in the sea of many right there in Stayrote, which is such a crazy concept that you can still feel like that in today's day and age um, in a very real way. Um, it's not, it's not theoretical. It's not something you're reading about. It's, it's real and true. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with like a thought or something that they can do when you hear about it, you know, remember us say to Hillem, if you know anybody, you know, in Israel, just send them a, you know, we're thinking of you because it does make people feel like, you know, we're, we're not in this alone. And there are others who are thinking about us. We've had, um, you know, communities like in their children's programs, make pictures and color cards and send it to the kids here saying anything anybody can think of and whatever their community can do. All these little things count, you know, we've just I'm telling you, like the cards and then we brought it to the kids who are like in a program here in a kids program just makes them happy to know that. There's somebody out there who's thinking about us and we're not alone, even though, you know, we live here and we suffer through this all the time, but there's definitely others thinking about us. Amazing. Right. There's no, there's no other nation that no matter how spread apart we are, we're still so connected, um, which is such a, such a it's very, very clear in how you're talking. So in thank- today's world with, you know, with, with, you know, with WhatsApp and, and emails and, and, you know, so easy to connect that it really is, it really is Mikam Chesrol and you really feel that connection and that people are there and, you know, thinking about you and doing whatever they can to, you know, pass along. It's going on, it's happening. Let's do something. And everybody can do whatever, you know, whatever they can do. If it means sending, you know, a lollipop, or if it means, you know, sending to a friend who, you know, is living somewhere over there just to tell them hi and how are you doing? Everything uh, counts. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sivya. Definitely parts of this conversation were definitely eye-opening to me. I didn't even think for a second there wouldn't be any Simcha halls, which to me is like, I'm going to have to process that. But <laughs> But like, wow, amazing. Thank you. So we have the very, very um, big pleasure of having Riv Fenton with us. I've seen Riv's work on Instagram, and I'm so excited that you're joining us for our Hanukkah episode. Can you share a little bit about what got you into music and what you're doing with your music? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, I have always been into music. My mom says that I was writing songs the second I could speak, which was very young. Um, And I always just had a love for music. Um, When I picked up my first guitar was in ninth grade and 10th grade. And my aunt actually taught me how to play a few chords. And that's when I really started writing real music. And then I went to Sohar Seminary and they encouraged me to write even more music. And that's when I had my first big performance opening for Shandalan Tellis. And then my love for the stage just like exploded. And I tried performing anytime I got a chance. 
So that's really how it started. What I'm doing with my music is nothing much. You know, I'm a mother of three and very busy. And it really is just my mashpia tells me that if Hashem gives you a gift, you have to use it. So when I feel the need to write, I'll write a song. If I get the chance to record it, I'll record it and put it out there. Um, But it's really more of just, I'm trying to write down my experiences and share it in a way that other people can relate and just kind of feel comforted or inspired. Um, I guess that's what I'm trying to do with it. Inspire, comfort, tell people they're not alone. I love that. And I think music is so connective. So those are really powerful ways. Um, I actually tell my colleagues this, that like, think about how you connect to spirituality and it's really different for every person, but some people connect to the spiritual parts of themselves through music. And that's a really important tool that we have to have access to. How do you use your music to serve Hashem? So my music is all about Hashem and my relationship with Hashem and Hasidus and and these teachings of Torah and Hasidus and how to apply it to real life. So I mean, first of all, I use it personally as a prayer, like I'm davening to Hashem through my music. And this is how I have open conversations. I really feel, I literally, I describe it as like a ray of light coming down from Shemayim, from Hashem to me. And this is our open line of communication. And this is how I speak to him. And this is how he speaks to me. So that's how Hashem is involved in my music. But I also, I try to teach, I try to inspire I don't, whatever knowledge I might have, I try to transfer in my music to any Jewish girls listening. I love that. Is there any Hanukkah specific ideas or stories that you'd like to share with us? Yeah. So I would love, I, I thought a little something. I always identified with the Maccabees, especially as a female singer, not so much anymore. It's much, it's exploded and there's so many more female singers now, but I felt like we're like, when it, when I really was doing it, I think like seven or eight years ago, I was like in the thick of it. There was like six or seven of us, you know, we were always performing together and we're always at all the same concerts. And I felt like a little army, like trying to do Hashem's work, just us trying to sing and trying to inspire women. And I think that the Maccabees were just amazing, amazing. They were brave, brave men who just stood up for what was right. And women, you heard this was a Maccabee also. Right. And women, right. And they just weren't afraid. Like the Greek army was massive. I mean, when I try to actually picture what happened, it is mind boggling that these five sons and went and fought like the Greeks and they were so few. And so, I mean, we're not fighting a war, but what we like, I feel like if they could make such a difference and fight a whole nation women, especially women singers, female singers or artists or whatever, we're a little army and we are fighting to spread joy and light and Hasidus and love and Hashem's name, you know, in our own way. I love that. And everyone who's listening, you can definitely shine your light, even if you're not creative, find the things that make you unique, find the things that make you special, um, that the gifts that Hashem has given you and, and shine your light, like Riva saying, shine your light out there in the most powerful, beautiful, connective way possible. Thank you so, so much for joining us. And we're going to hear two very, very beautiful songs. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about them before we play them? 
Yeah, I would love to. Um, we'll start with One Light because uh, it's my Hanukkah song specifically. One Light is really was like uh, my inner struggle. I wrote it as a teenager, you know, feeling cold and alone and no one understood me. And then realizing that I don't really need other people to understand me, that my strength and my warmth is from within and I can brighten the world in my own way. And I don't need to be like anybody else. And I can just be me and my soul is needed in this world. And my soul is going to add light and one light will brighten the darkness. That's the words. And my light will brighten the darkness. And then after processing that for me, I realized like this is true for other women and other girls and your light is going to brighten the darkness and we're all brightening our own worlds. So that's one light. I'm cold, the ice has reached my bones and you bet I'm scared. My fingers feel like stones in this blackened air In all this dark it's hard to move beyond myself Without my soul I know I'd be stuck here with no help Just a mic can brighten the darkness, just one light Just one light can brighten the darkness Just one light I hear a voice or just a noise Coming from my skin Tells me you have no choice And your strength is from within Just a light can brighten the darkness Just one the darkness just one light can brighten the darkness just one light will brighten the darkness just one light has brightened the darkness and just one light has brightened the darkness just one light Just one.
Just one light has brightened the darkness Just one light has brightened the darkness Just one light I love that. And now we're going to listen to the second song, which is March On. So March On was written actually about um, Avram, Avram Avinu and what Hashem told Avram and his promise. And I just put myself in Avram's shoes. Um, I had just moved um, from Crown Heights with my husband and we were moving to be teachers in a school. And I kind of said like, I don't know. I want, it was the message I wanted to give my students. I was teaching the Parsha and I wanted to, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of war going on in Israel at the time. And it was really scary stuff happening in attacks. And so I just wanted to, I wanted to share, like, we shouldn't be afraid. We should march on. We should be strong. We have nothing to fear. You know, Hashem is with us. And Hashem promised Avram all these things, and we are Avram's stars, and we are his children, and we're going to plant our seeds, and they're going to grow, because that's what Hashem told us. So that's what March On is about. Go for yourself. To the place I will show you Take all your wealth and leave Spread my name wide And I will grow you Just like the stars you will be Pick yourself past far behind you sow the earth and plant your seeds nurture your soul reach your goal God will guide you follow through to where it leads live long be strong, march on to this world unknown, fear none, Zion, God's one and your seeds will grow. Lengthen your stride, close your eyes, let God hold you And touch your heart and feel it beat Put your troubles aside, live your life, all is for you On the ground beneath your feet
seeds will grow. I love the song and I love the fact that everything in this podcast just came full circle as we end off this podcast with Sivya speaking about her journey in Stay Road and Riv talking about this beautiful um, song and this beautiful journey of shining our life. And of course, Laura shining her light in a very real way and sharing her beautiful rendition of Hanera Salalu. So thank you, everyone. I wish you all a very, very happy Hanukkah. Shine your lights in your home, in yourselves and out into the world in the brightest way possible. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed and grew. Original music of Shamil's Niggin provided by Hazen David Katak. We look forward to your input, feedback, and suggestions. We also have partnership opportunities available. Please email info at bodiessouls.com. Again, info at bodiessouls.com with two S's. Thank you. Thank you.